למשל. Hi everyone, welcome back, and yes, that is Moana in Hebrew that I found on YouTube at the beginning here, which brings us to today's topic. In 1881, Eliezer ben stepped off a boat in the port city of Jaffa, took a look around, turned to his family, and said, from now on, we are only speaking Hebrew. The problem was that no one else really did, and his family endured years of struggle as Ben Yehuda tried to revive Hebrew into a spoken language amongst the Jews of Palestine. The idea of connecting this ancient language to modernity had been building for over a hundred years at this point, but it was Zionism that most effectively used Hebrew to revive the Jewish national spirit in Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. So, Hebrew, that's today's topic. This is Jew I Don't Know. Cue the opening music. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, so of course it wasn't just that straightforward of Ben Yehuda simply declaring that he's only going to speak Hebrew. I'm exaggerating a little bit because I'm telling a story here. But anyway, it's not as if people didn't already know Hebrew. I mean, we had been using it for thousands of years. For instance, there is the Gezer calendar, a small limestone tablet written in an early form of Hebrew. It was discovered in 1908 and dates to around 1000 BCE, during the time of King David and King Solomon. So we know that Hebrew was spoken and used in ancient times, but we don't quite know its origins or exactly when and how it went mainstream. We know that Hebrew remained in daily use down through the ages up until the Roman era and the centuries around the beginning of the Common Era. But it was also used then alongside Aramaic and Greek, and probably sometime around the year 200, Hebrew stopped being the daily spoken language. But even though it wasn't spoken, it was still used as a literary language, and most especially as the sacred tongue of the Jewish people. Connected as it was to our history, culture, the land of Israel, and the Torah, Hebrew was used in the liturgy, in prayer, in Torah study, in serious rabbinic legal documents and opinions, and in writing the Talmud. And as Jews began to scatter around the world, they continued to use Hebrew to communicate to one another in letters, books, poetry, contracts, things like that. It was a living literary language, evolving through time and place to adopt and adapt new words, new grammar, new ideas. But as the centuries wore on, it ceased to be the daily spoken tongue of the Jews. So, when Jews in the 17 and 1800s started looking at ways to revive Jewish culture through a secular movement, an era called the Enlightenment, many of them had the idea of bringing Hebrew back. They saw in Hebrew a return to a purer language that better reflected the ideals of Jewish history and culture much more so than the languages currently in use like German or Russian or, worst of all to them, Yiddish. Hebrew newspapers, magazines, and even novels started popping up all over Europe, starting in Germany and then moving to Russia and Poland. For the Zionists, who were very much a part of this movement and wanted to not only revive Jewish culture but, of course, to transform the Jew into a new kind of person, Hebrew offered enormous appeal. 
Since it was the language we used the last time we had sovereignty in the land of Israel, well, if we're going to revive our national homeland, we ought to revive our national language too. And not just to go back to those ancient times to provide a continuity of purpose across history, but also as a tool to unify the Jewish people around this nationalist ideal. Language is a major unifying force in societies, especially when you have people coming from all over the world. So it was a key component of the Zionists' efforts to build a new society in Eretz Yisrael. Of course, it was not that easy. For one thing, because Hebrew had remained a sacred and literary language since antiquity, it had preserved bits and pieces of words, phrases, and structures from centuries past. It's like walking into Starbucks today and trying to order in Shakespearean English. As a spoken language, it didn't come together so well. So by the 1800s, you could write in Hebrew fairly decently, but it still wasn't being used as a spoken tongue. And Hebrew also had a lot of competition for daily speech. Remember all the way back to our Zionism redwood tree roots. One of those roots lay in Western Europe, where Jews were in danger of assimilating Judaism out of existence. Well, if you were one of those assimilating Jews, you didn't want to learn to speak Hebrew. You wanted to speak German so that you could integrate into German society. Hebrew was the language of the pious rabbis and the ancient religion. All those prayers and rituals and strange ways of doing things that set you apart from the majority, you don't want to have anything to do with that. And in Eastern Europe, Hebrew was up against a language that, by the early 1900s, had 11 million speakers. Yiddish. Yiddish was the daily vernacular of most Jews. And it was also the language used to produce a wide-ranging literature, poems, plays, novels, and newspapers. It was deeply embedded in Jewish culture and Jewish life. But it wasn't ancient. It wasn't connected to the glorified Jewish past. And every distinct group of Jews seemed to have their own problems with it. Like for the Orthodox, Yiddish was a street language to them. It was spoken by the masses. It was spoken by women. It was used for everyday ordinary things far removed from the holiness of God. Besides, Yiddish was just temporary. When the Messiah comes, all the Jews will again speak Hebrew. But for the secular Jews in Western Europe, Yiddish was almost the opposite. It was too connected to the orthodoxy of their backward cousins in Eastern Europe those impoverished, superstitious Jews who refused to embrace modern life. And for the Zionists in particular, most of whom hailed from Eastern Europe and who were trying to create an entirely new kind of Jew, Yiddish simply couldn't be the language going forward. It was too much of a reminder of persecution and oppression. Its idiosyncrasies kept its speakers mired in the traditional ways of Judaism that these secular Zionists were trying to do away with. If you remember back a few episodes, some Zionists thought that the language of the future Jewish state would be a matter of some kind of market economics. All these Jews from all over the world would come to the renewed homeland, speaking each their mother tongue. Eventually, many thought, one or the other would come to dominate through some sort of natural selection process. Of course, this wasn't a great idea, because first of all, Yiddish would win. And again, the effort to revive Hebrew was a key part of reviving the Jewish homeland, reviving the Jewish people, and reviving the Jewish spirit. All these other languages wouldn't do. German was tied to Germany. Russian was tied to Russia. Yiddish was tied to poverty and oppression. Hebrew was the language of our exalted ancestors, and so it will become ours again. But back to the original problem. It was a literary and sacred language, not a spoken one. Most people couldn't manage more than a basic conversation. 
So with that, enter Eleazar Yitzhak Perlman. Or at least that was his given name. We know him as Eleazar Ben Yehuda. It is tempting, as with all things in history, to reduce a complex movement to the work of just one person. Just as Herzl tends to get the lion's share of credit for Zionism, Ben Yehuda gets the credit for the revival of Hebrew. And like Herzl, much of that credit is very well earned. But just as Herzl wasn't the first Zionist, Ben Yehuda wasn't the first or only Hebrew speaker of his era. But what he did, like Herzl did with Zionism, was put Hebrew on the map. He seized the potential and enabled the Hebrew project to move forward, setting the conditions for Hebrew to become embedded in the population of Eretz Yisrael. Eliezer Yitzhak Perlman was born into an Orthodox Lithuanian family in what is now Belarus. He was, from his teens, a polyglot, learning and speaking multiple languages, including the basic Hebrew that existed in the mid-1800s. He was heavily influenced by the secular Zionist movement then getting underway, and he became convinced that Hebrew would unite the Jews around Zionism, especially since no state yet existed. And he had this idea. The problem with Hebrew is that you had to learn it as an adult, and so it would always be kind of cumbersome to use, since fluency is difficult to attain and there's nowhere really to immerse. But what if you could raise a child from infancy to speak Hebrew? and do so in a land where it would serve as a national tongue. In other words, Perlman decided that he would raise his child to speak only Hebrew, catalyzing everyone else as the child grew up to also speak Hebrew. Of course, to have a child, he needed a wife, and to get a wife, he had to find a woman who would be on board with this plan. And he did, a woman named Devorah Jonas, whom he married in 1881. That same year, Eliezer and Devorah followed the Zionist dream to Palestine in order to settle down and advance his Hebrew project. With much excitement, he would later describe his first conversations in Hebrew after stepping off the boat with a Jewish money changer, innkeeper, and wagoner. It's funny how some things never change, because usually my first conversations stepping off the plane in Israel are with the money changer, the hotel guy, and the bus driver. And in the spirit of Hebrew revival and Jewish renewal, he decided to change his name from Perlman to Ben Yehuda, which means son of Judea, a name that evokes the ancient past when Hebrew was the language of the land. We've already seen, and we'll see again and again, that changing one's European given name to a Hebrew name will be a frequent and deliberate effort on the part of Zionist immigrants to adopt a new persona, to effect that rebirth. When their first child was born a year later, in 1882, Ben Yehuda made Devorah promise to raise their child Itamar only in Hebrew. Itamar would later relate that his parents went to extraordinary lengths to ensure that he was only exposed to Hebrew. They refused to allow him to be around people, whether children or adults, who didn't speak Hebrew to him. Itamar would later complain, no doubt with exaggeration, that his parents wouldn't even let him leave the house to hear the sounds of birds, horses, donkeys, and butterflies. Because, after all... Those weren't in Hebrew. As you can imagine, this extremism had a huge impact on Itamar's development, as he did not start speaking until he was three or four years old. The famous story goes that one day Ben Yehuda came home to hear Devorah absently singing a Russian lullaby to calm the crying child, and he flew into a rage because she wasn't using Hebrew. 
This caused little Itamar to cry out, Abba, which means dad. And thus he began speaking Hebrew. Whether that story is true or not, in any case, what is true is this. Itamar was the very first native Hebrew speaker in nearly 18 centuries. Ben Yehuda's grand experiment was proven correct. It was possible to revive the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language, said Ben Yehuda, will go from the synagogue to the house of study, and from the house of study to the school, and from the school it will come into the home and become a living language. This feedback mechanism meant that children educated with Hebrew in the schools would bring it into the home, teaching it to their parents, who would then be able to rear yet more children in the language, and within a generation or two, Hebrew would be the natural language of the Jewish community in Palestine. And he was right. It didn't take too long, actually. By 1922, the British Empire, which then controlled Palestine, made Hebrew an official language. Now, one thing that we can say with this podcast is that things never quite go so easily when it comes to Jewish, Israeli, and Zionist history. And the revival of Hebrew wasn't smooth sailing either. For one thing, spoken Hebrew was missing huge amounts of vocabulary, grammar, pronunciation, and standardization. The fact that people only sort of kind of used Hebrew meant that individuals used it however they wanted. In other words, the way that I use Hebrew might be different than the way you use Hebrew, so we might have trouble communicating. So Ben Yehuda tasked himself with standardizing Hebrew, and this is where his outsized influence comes in and why he gets so much credit for the Hebrew revival. He started a dictionary, the complete dictionary of ancient and modern Hebrew. He used his journalism skills to publish lists of words and grammar and other tips in his newspaper so that his readers could get caught up on the latest standardizations that he was developing. And here's where we have this totally cool and unique opportunity to watch a modern language develop in real time with its speakers. Imagine that you invented a language when a child was born and had to develop new words for the child to use as it grew up. So, for instance, as Itamar grew up through infancy and became a toddler and then a child, Ben Yehuda had to invent new Hebrew words for things like doll and ice cream and towel and bicycle and tons more. As Itamar grew up, not only did the number of modern Hebrew words increase, but so did the range of expressions that you could use, the complexity of the sentence structure, all that stuff. And this wasn't just happening in the Ben Yehuda house, but all over the Jewish community. The young and idealistic immigrants who came from Europe came because they were excited about bringing new ideas to Judaism. Starting in the early 1880s, at the same time as the Ben Yehuda family arrived, they welcomed the opportunity to reinvent the Jew by trying new things, whether it was new ideologies like socialism or new agricultural techniques or a new language. Speaking Hebrew was a symbol of their renewal, of their reinvention as Jews, and of their belief that they were setting forth the Jewish future. That they were speaking and reviving the ancient tongue in the ancient land, this became a major feature of their Jewish nationalism, their Zionism. But, again, it wasn't so easy. It wasn't just the technical complexity of reinventing a language. There was opposition. Yes, these new immigrants were often excited about taking up Hebrew, but, as I've mentioned before, life was really hard there. And as they struggled to meet the basic necessities, Trying to speak this new Hebrew language often gave way to just talking in whatever common language they already had together, 
like Yiddish. And there was opposition, too, from the top. I mentioned a few episodes ago that Theodore Herzl himself didn't think Hebrew was going to work. Who among us has a sufficient acquaintance with Hebrew to ask for a railway ticket, he famously asked. Such a thing cannot be done. Ahad Ha'am, whose whole thing was making the land of Israel into the spiritual center of Judaism, attacked Ben Yehuda as a soulless linguistic mechanic. A soulless linguistic mechanic, which is coincidentally the summary on my LinkedIn profile. And I also talked about how the Orthodox were usually against the whole idea of Zionism, since the recreation of the Jewish homeland could only come about through an act of God, like the arrival of the Messiah. For them, Hebrew was the holy language. How dare a Jew profane the sacred language of the Torah by using it to ask for a railway ticket, or to talk about ice cream, or on birthright to learn pickup lines to flirt? The Orthodox in Palestine were so opposed to Ben Yehuda that they actually had him briefly arrested by the Ottoman authorities. And when that didn't stop him, they excommunicated him. Now, to be fair, they had a little bit of a reason to worry beyond the risk of profaning the holy language. Remember that the early Zionists were secular. Part of the problem with Judaism, they said, was that the Orthodox control everything. Zionism and the renewal of Jewish life in the land of Israel is going to be an opportunity to break that hold. And Ben Yehuda was very much on board with this plan. He saw the revival of spoken Hebrew for secular society as a key part of his contribution to this effort. Finally, Ben Yehuda was also struggling in his personal life, from which the development of Hebrew took so much time and effort. His wife, Devorah, died of tuberculosis in 1891, leaving behind their five young children, including the nine-year-old Itamar. Three of those children then died of diphtheria, and all within a 10-day period of each other. Six months after their deaths, and honoring Devorah's last wish, Ben Yehuda married her sister, Paula. Also very much on board with the revival of Hebrew, Paula changed her name to Hemda, and I think it's fair to argue, also had a huge impact on the revival of Hebrew. After his death in 1922, it failed to Hemda to finish his work on the Hebrew Dictionary, which she worked on until her death in 1951. She became a prolific fundraiser and organizer of the various committees and organizations that worked on developing Hebrew, and was also a well-known journalist and author in her own right. The dictionary that Ben Yehuda started was finally finished in 1958, the Complete Dictionary of Ancient and Modern Hebrew. Before that, in 1953, the State of Israel formed the Academy of Hebrew Language, which still exists today. Its job is to continue forming new Hebrew words to meet the needs of a modern and evolving society, and also to form those words so that in the absence of a word in Hebrew, Israelis don't just use English words with an Israeli accent. So, for instance, recently, the Academy coined a Hebrew word for gentrification, elut, which comes from a word meaning elite. Junk food is zelolet, and it comes from three words that mean cheap, junk, and overeating. Every year, the Academy invents around 2,000 new words in Hebrew. Often, they take the root from an existing Hebrew word that means something similar to the new idea and add to it the necessary letters to form a modern pronunciation and grammar. As a historian, Paul Johnson notes, Hebrew succeeded in its revival where other language revival attempts in other countries have failed, because it was, like Judaism, concerned with everyday things, even in ancient times. The basics of daily life, like work, housing, food, traveling, 
interpersonal relations and behavior, they were discussed extensively in the Torah and in later Jewish texts. So when people did start to speak Hebrew, they found it pretty easy to adapt to modern life. In this way, he said, Hebrew grew organically. It worked because everyone spoke it, and everyone spoke it because it started to work. The revival of Hebrew became a self-sustaining process. And in that way, it also became the language of the Jewish revival in which to renew the Jewish national home in the land of Israel. So to recap, in the 1880s, there was essentially one native fluent speaker of Hebrew, the child Itamar. Today, in 2017, there's around 9 million. <laughs> Okay, so I really love this story of Hebrew. Uh, when I started this episode, I actually planned to talk all about the early settlements and the towns and kibbutz life in Israel, and I was just going to talk about Hebrew for like a couple of minutes. But this podcast keeps getting longer because I keep finding compelling stories. So I wish I could tell you what's on tap for next week, but I'm actually not sure. I think it'll either be the story of these early settlements or it will be World War I and what we call the Balfour Declaration. So I will let the suspense sit with you for a week. Talk to you next Sunday.